0: And as you are, take your Bibles again, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll finish this portion tonight in these next few brief minutes. As I said this morning, we'll next week resume our series in John, picking back up where we left off. We finished the end of chapter 6 at the end of November, and we'll resume there with chapter 7, verse 1 and following next Sunday morning. And then uh, Sunday evening will be Hosea chapter 1, good Lord willing. Let's read verses 1 through 11 again, those opening two paragraphs of this wonderful chapter. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word here this evening. So this morning, if you weren't with us, we looked at verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 are vital to this so tonight you have to buy the cd they're 99.99 if you buy them before you leave and that way you'll know what is going on in the passage i'm preaching for no the summary of it is you really do need to have been here this morning it's the lord's day all day long but the gospel which you received that's not just oh yeah i believe that But it's an owning. It's an absorbing. I'll tell you something a minister of the gospel worth his salt hates to hear more than anything else. You've taught me a lot, Pastor. That is absolutely meaningless to a pastor. Every teacher that teaches teaches people a lot. That's not the point of preaching. There is a didactic element. Paul tells us that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 and following. But being taught something is not the point, is it? You don't come in here on Sunday morning or Sunday night to be taught something. You come in here on Sunday morning Sunday night to be transformed by the renewing of your souls, by the grace of God a lot of people know a lot of things and it doesn't change their lives the gospel is is only the good news to you and to me if it changes our lives and that's paul's point true saving faith changes our lives we receive it in such a way that as he says you are standing in it you are being saved you're holding fast If those things aren't true, then you believed, whatever you're calling belief, you believed in vain, Paul says. Now, he illustrates later on what it's like not to believe in vain in his own life. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain, On the contrary. So how do you know that the the faith that you're claiming to be faith is not a vain faith, an empty faith, a meaningless faith? Well, Paul tells you. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. If you want to know if your faith is genuine, go to the book of James. And James is telling us just what Paul's telling us here, isn't he? The faith that's genuine works. And I don't mean it'll get you there, it'll get you to heaven when you die. It means it's producing, it's it's working in us. It's like leaven in the dough. It's working and people can see that it's working. It's changing us. So that's what we saw this morning. That's how... We're to receive the good news. That's genuine saving faith. So Paul begins there. As I was telling one of the, one of the brothers, one of your fellow members earlier, uh, I, I, I cannot tell you how many sermons I've heard preached from this passage. And I don't think I ever heard anyone make a point from verses 1 and 2. They almost always go straight to verse 3. And start talking about the burial, the, the, uh, the death rather, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says that's important. That's what he did for us. But you gotta, you got to know how to receive it. How to properly appropriate it. It doesn't matter if you know all the facts if you don't know how to receive them properly. There are books that I could read, and I just happen to be looking this way, so Mark Buckner and Joel Crook come into my line of vision. Their books, in which they have worked and lived and had their breath and, 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 and living for years, I could read and know the facts. I could, I could know what's what said. But you know what? It would I would not know how to appropriate that. I would not know how to make that. Useful. That's what Paul's saying here. Before I get to all the facts you need to know, you need to know how to appropriate those facts. You need to know how to take them in and make them useful. And a lot of people just kind of squander around in the Christian life and they don't get it. Because they don't know how to appropriate all that they're hearing from the scriptures. They learn a lot, but it's not changing their lives because they don't know how to how to how how to receive it. And Paul began saying, This is how you receive it. This is what it means. You have to own it. You have to let it let it change you. You have to then be established in it, in which you stand. You have to see this on an ongoing basis, being saved. And holding fast as it said this morning saving faith is not just a not just a subjective thing it's not just something in here but it's something that produces evidence you can look at your life and be con- be confirmed in your faith well here's Here's what we're having to appropriate. Here's what we're supposed to receive. Here's what we're supposed to stand in. Here's what we're supposed to hold fast. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the first thing. He died for our sins. The death of Christ is essential to the gospel message, it's essential to salvation. There's no equivocation here on Paul's point. part, is there? He says, this is first importance. Now this is similar to when Paul says in, in Galatians, uh, uh, I wanna talk about the fruit of the spirit, singular. And then he goes into that litany, right? Love, joy, peace, right on down the list. You can't pick and choose. There's, there's just not one or two of those they're all to be taken as a collective whole. And so if you, if, you, if you have the fruit of the Spirit, then those things are going to be part of your life. Well, the same thing here. If, you, if you've received the gospel, well, here they are. These, this is the first thing. And the first thing of the first thing is that he died. But notice it didn't just say he died. You've got to believe that Jesus died. Well, that wouldn't be hard to do. Most people living at the time had seen people die. They didn't do like we do today, and that is protect our children from death. Children saw people die. Children went to funerals. Children children had to deal with death because death's part of life. That was not the point Paul's making. Not a big deal that people die. A lot of people die. Everyone dies if they live long enough. But Jesus died for our sins. You have to believe that he died for our sins. A lot of people believe Jesus was a good man. A lot of people believe that Jesus was a good prophet there's even a false religion right a world religion that believes that jesus was a great prophet but they don't believe he's the savior of sinners because if they believed he was the savior of sinners that wouldn't ne- and they know this it would necessitate that they believe he is god and they don't believe he's god But a lot of people have put their faith in a great prophet Jesus a lot of people have put their faith in a great moral exemplar Jesus and that faith won't save you that faith will leave you at death's door and there'll be no hope on the other side of it see here's the problem We're sinners. And so Jesus had to die for our sins. We inherited sin debt. Scriptures are clear on this. We're progeny of Adam. Sin comes to us through what our confession of faith calls ordinary generation, in other words, through birth. We're born sinners. David says, I was conceived in sin. He wasn't talking about his mother and father sinning, perhaps, perhaps having relations out of wedlock. No, he was conceived and in the very moment of conception, he inherited sin. And therefore was guilty before God Almighty. I hope you understand that. If you've attended this church long at all, you know that. Original sin is passed down from generation to generation to generation. That's the reason you don't have to teach children to misbehave. I, would, I could ask, how many of you parents had to go out of your way to teach your children to be selfish? Selfish? How many of you parents had to teach your children to squirm and, 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 and get their own way when they didn't want to do what you wanted them to do? It's amazing, isn't it? How good they are at sin. I'm looking at my grandchild back there in the back right now. And I know my sweet daughter did not teach that child to be selfish. From day one through these nine months. But he's a selfish little booger. He wants what he wants now. And so do we because we're sinners. We're eat up with it. But we're not, we didn't just inherit sin. We compound our sin problem. Paul talks about this. Here's a big term. We compound our inherited sin by suppressing the truth. We can just talk about everything that we do that compounds our sin under that label right there. Suppressing the truth. That's the way Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. That we're all good about it. We're all guilty of it. We suppress the truth. We don't recognize God's hand in everything. We're suppressing the truth. We don't think about God the way we're supposed to think about God. I was just having a quick little conversation before I came to do the announcements earlier. I remember he just commented on some folks that believe in annihilationism. If you don't know what that is, it, it's this: it is they don't believe the Bible uh, that teaches that uh, when when a person who is not in Christ, a lost person, dies, they don't believe that they will suffer interminably in a in a in a location called hell under the under the wrath of God forever, rather that they will be annihilated when they die. They would say, "Well, that's punishment." God just annihilates them. That's what they have to pay for their sin. Well, we believe, and the, and the preponderance of Christianity historically has believed, that the Bible is clear on this, is that our sin is of infinite, infinite harm to God and his glory. And therefore has to be punished infinitely. That means, as Jesus said, there's a place where we will be punished where the worm never dies. Well, then I made the comment to to my friend. Yes, and I remember so. I said, but you know... Uh, I can understand why people want to believe in annihilationism. Can, and you can too, can't you? If you've had a loved one who doesn't trust in Christ to die, you, you would. If there was some way to get around this idea that they're going to live in eternal perdition forever, 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 unending suffering and agony. I would like to believe that if I could. Just like I'd love to believe that in the end everyone's going to be saved. That's called universalism. And that doesn't have to, by the way, that doesn't have to be just a, a ranked liberal theological position. There have been some people who are fairly conservative theologically who have landed on universalism. I remember going into the study of my dear, beloved mentor, Dr. Barnard. I was studying one particular 20th century theologian, preparing to write a, a big paper on him. And I said, Dr. Barnard, um, he believes in universalism. Everyone's going to be saved. He said, he does. I said, uh, how can you believe that? The Bible is so clear. How can you deny the scriptural teaching on hell? And I'll never forget what he said in his English accent. He looked at me and his, his little Parkinson riddled finger. And he said, Nikki, and you can't call me that. Only Dr. Barnard and my wife sometimes. He said, Nicky, have you ever had a loved one to die? And I said, yes. He said, have you ever had a loved one that's not a believer die? At that point, I hadn't. And I said, no. He said, if you had, you could understand. Wouldn't you love to believe that somehow... They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna be saved. And I said, well, yes, but I can't because, he said, I know. You and I have a problem. It's called the Bible. But in here, in our emotion, apart from the scripture, if we're not committed to the absolute authority of the scripture, you can understand why someone would end up being a universalist. And he was right, of course. Our sin is so bad that it required God to come to this earth and take on flesh and to die, to take the penalty of our sin. Both that which we've inherited and that which we add to it, compounding our sin with our daily activities of suppressing the truth. Sins of omission, sins of commission. And so Paul begins with the fact that he died for our sins. And then he reminds us of something. He says, and by the way, that was in accordance with the scriptures. We're not going to take the time, but we could go to the Old Testament and see the prophecies. Isaiah 53 is just one sample. You can go there. Some of you have already thought about it. Where this one was going to suffer and die. For many, the transgressions were going to be placed upon him that he might save his people. Paul says it this way, for our sake he made him, God the Father, made God the Son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God we call that substitutionary atonement. There's a little Greek word that's used a lot. Paul loves to use it. It means in the place of, in the stead of, on behalf of. We talk about it in terms of substitutionary atonement. It's a sine qua non. It's a fundamental of the faith. Isaiah, as I've already alluded, put it this way. That he, this one, this suffering servant, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities in our place. That's the only reason you and I have any hope is because he took our place. So that we didn't have to suffer for our sin. Second, he goes on. The second first thing he says the second first importance that he was buried he was buried you're like what's the being buried so big a deal about i could see him saying he died and was raised but he was buried why does he throw that in there if he died of course he was buried he was put on a shelf in a in a stone cave he was buried it may not be seem important to single out his burial but it was important because jesus said that he was buried for just as jonah was 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of the great fish so will the son of man be 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth jesus said i'm going to be buried it's a big deal nothing superfluous with what jesus did nothing wasted It was important to be buried. Paul says this in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And then he says we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Being buried is a big deal. Later in that same chapter 6 of Romans, Paul argues on the basis of our death with Christ that we're dead to sin. He says it this way, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're dead and buried, you would be made alive and raised. That's why being buried is a big deal. You can't be raised unless you're buried. Matthew Henry gives us one of those many memorable quotes that Henry is so good about. We, he says, I'm sorry, let me back it. The grave was to him not the destined receptacle of corruption, because he didn't stay long enough to be corrupted. The grave was to him not the destined receptacle of corruption, but an apartment fitted for entering into life. It was an apartment fitted for entering into life. We're united with Christ in his perfect life. We're united to Christ in his perfect death. And we're united with Christ in his burial. That's the reason our shorter catechism says one of the most beautiful thoughts. I use it every time at graveside. Those of you who've been with me to the graveside, sometimes if they're not going to be a graveside service for a, for a death, I'll do it at the funeral service catechism. That we, the dead, are buried with Christ. We're united to Christ in our burial. Do you, do you get it? See, when your loved one is placed in a grave, it doesn't matter where it is, if it's in Peru, where they put them in holes in the side of the mountain. Or if it's down in New Orleans, in the low bog country, where they don't bury you underground. Because if they did, you'd float at the next storm, buried above ground. Or in the Middle East, where they put you in caves. By the way, let you just throw an apologetic note in here. That's the reason the whole baptism by immersion argument based on burial is bogus because burial under the ground is doesn't happen universally as i just said it doesn't happen in new orleans doesn't happen in south america doesn't happen in the middle east burial has to do with our union with christ And when we bury our loved ones at whichever angle, whichever level, sea level it is, they're buried in union with Christ so that we don't bury them thinking this is the end. We bury them knowing this is just an apartment for their bodies to live in until the resurrection day when their bodies will be raised and reunited with their souls which go immediately into the presence of the Lord at their death. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? That the saints that have been buried in the Middle East and all over the world for thousands of years turning to dust or perhaps lost at sea and consumed by creatures. Those body parts in whatever constitution they are today are united to Christ as securely now as they were when those men and women, boys and girls lived on this earth and they're as secure now as they will be in the new heavens and new earth because they're united to Christ. That's why Paul makes a big deal out of he was buried. Because he wanted them to know just as you're united to him in his death, you are equally united to him in the grave. Then he goes on and he says, The resurrection. Here's the first importance. He died for our sins. Here's the second first importance. He was buried. Here's the third first importance. He was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. He was raised. He's going to go on in this chapter, chapter 15, to argue that if there is no resurrection, then forget it. If Christ Jesus was not raised from the grave, then there is no hope. But he also goes on to say, but there is. He was raised and we do have hope. He is coming again and he will raise us up with him on that great Day. The resurrection first, I want you to notice, fulfilled the scriptures. Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Hosea 6, we'll get there in a few months. Hosea 6, 1 and 2, we read of the hope the people of God have. And this is filled with language that can only, only... Speak to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what it says. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. I'm going to tell you what. When you go read Hosea... And when we get there, you're gonna, we're going to read that and you're going to say, huh? He's talking to people who are alive. And he's talking about people who are going to die at some point in the future then, hundreds of years before Christ. And they've been in the grave longer than two days. And they've been in the grave longer than three days. And they're still there. They haven't been raised they haven't been revived. It's absolutely nonsensical unless that passage applies to Jesus Christ. John Gill, who is a, a, a remarkable, one of our remarkable Calvinistic Baptist friends from days of old, he, he talks about this at length, how important the third day is in the Bible. He says the Jews take a particular notice of the third day as remarkable for many things they observe. And then he gives this list of citations, and I'll just go through them with you. Of the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. Some of you know that comes in chapter 22 of Genesis, and that's in relationship to Abraham instructed to take Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. And there we finally conclude that Isaac's not the ultimate sacrifice, but God will provide himself a sacrifice. And the third day, he lifted up his eyes. Of the third day, the tribes. That's later in Genesis chapter 42. A reference to the tribes and and. And their activities and how important the third day was for their activities in God's design. And then in Joshua chapter 2, significant things happened on the third day. And then in Exodus chapter 9, there's something remarkable that took place on the third day of the giving of the law. And then, of course, we've got Jonah and the third day. And Jesus used that as I just read it. In Ezra chapter 8, it was on the third day, we're told, that the people came out of captivity. Of the third day of the resurrection of the dead, as it's written, Hosea 6.2. Here's Gil talking again. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. And he goes on to talk about our un- union with Christ, then, is significant because we too will be raised up because he, on the third day, fulfilled all the scriptures to be raised. <clears throat> but he goes on with this resurrection thing. And by the way, the resurrection is important. Because God made us body and soul. Right? That's no little thing. We're told in Genesis that God said, let us make man in our image. And what did he do? From the dust of the ground, he shaped and molded Adam. And then he breathed life into him. He had both a body and he breathed into him a soul. He's body and soul. He was not Adam either in the body or in the soul. He was Adam in body and soul. That's why the resurrection of the body. We can be sure there's going to be a resurrection of the body. The Bible tells us so. But it's necessary for who we are. In our completeness as image bearers. Of God, Paul knew that it would be hard for sinners to grasp and believe the resurrection. You say, Well, Where'd you get that in this passage? Well, because the bulk of this of this paragraph is him making a an argument for it. He didn't just say it like he did. He died, and he was buried. Those are easy, right? But that raised thing, that resurrected thing, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to pile up some evidence on this one. And so he he goes. He says, and he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to 12, and then he appeared to more than 500. Oh, and by the way, if you want to check me out on this, some of them, many of them are still alive. You know, don't think I'm, 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 I'm talking about people who are all dead and you can't check me out on this. And then he appeared to James, most think brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, last of all. Paul he says to me and I didn't deserve it and you and I don't deserve it either we don't deserve the spirit of the living God opening our eyes that we could know the Lord Jesus Christ who is even now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead you see Paul Paul did something here because he knew if, if he just said he appeared to the disciples, well, they were nuts anyway. They weren't stable people. I mean, they've been following him around for three years. And what'd they get for it? Heartache. Nothing but heartaches. They weren't stable. They were just not mentally there. Well, you know, he appeared to his brother, James. Well... You know, family members. Those five hundred, though. I going to tell you, when you start throwing all these out there, there's no, there's there's no testimony of a man that this depends on, but rather countless men. There there's no no oppor- There there is no possibility. You know, if you just listed one or two or ten or twelve or fifteen or twenty, you you, you might get. As one, as one commentator said, you might explain it away with some psychologically imbalanced people. But not with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. You can't collect that many people. And so Paul pours it on. It's the trustworthy facts that he set before them. And then he wraps up with himself and says, oh, by the way, it's all this that produced in me what you're seeing. I mean, I'm the guy that started out crucifying people over this. I hated people who believed this. I was killing people who believed this. This is what changed my life. This was my rehabilitation. So the question is, is this the good news that you believe? that he lived a perfect life, you say, well, wait a minute, he didn't say that. Well, that's assumed. That's the whole point. He had to live in order to die and be buried and be raised. So do you believe it? And why wouldn't that message produce in each of us just what it did in Paul? Paul? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. That's what the gospel does. And then, Paul says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. The grace of God. One of the things we saw back in Isaiah chapter 62, as we finish, was the commitment they had in that chapter to tell other people about what their great God had done. Did you pick that up as we began reading? For Zion's sake, Isaiah says, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. See, it's not just Isaiah preaching to them, but it's then them preaching through their lives to the whole world. That's a changed life. That's a faith that's properly appropriated the true gospel. It changes us, and it permeates those around us. As you notice, too, the beauty of this? In verse 5, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isn't that wonderful to walk out here tonight knowing that our God, I don't know how to even think about that. I mean, we talk a lot about us rejoicing, us glorifying God, all glory and honor to God. And yet this says that he, he rejoices over us. Because he loves us. And we love him because he first loved us. Father, thank you for that very fact. and We ask now that you would uh, hear this prayer to give us the faith that we need to believe and that we might be changed even now because we are being saved, that we would change tonight from where we were when we came in and tomorrow morning from where we are when we leave. And we want to live in a way that brings you joy. And we ask you to do it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.